So please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This is the word of the truth, the gospel. Many of you, myself included, grew up uh, seeing pictures of Jesus, maybe in the church or at home. When my grandfather died, we were handed a prayer card that had Jesus the Good Shepherd, and on the back was the 23rd Psalm. In the church where my dad's parents raised me, there was a stained glass pictures on all the windows of Jesus, the shepherd, of Jesus helping the needy and the sick, Jesus welcoming the children. Uh, there were picture book Bibles of an accessible, meek, comforting Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with understanding Jesus in that way. He calls himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart. But as hip-hop artist, the ambassador, raps in his rap, Psalm 23, man is used to seeing Jesus in his lambness, but they don't understand this lamb is running every single planet. We proclaim as Christians that Jesus is Lord, but do we really have an idea what that means? This proclamation, Jesus is Lord, it's the distinctive feature of the Christian faith. It sets us apart from every other belief system. And though we may have things in common with people of other faiths, we do not serve the same God as them. And to illustrate that, I would suggest that you take them, if there's any doubt, any question, your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones who, who follow a different faith, take them to these verses. Take them to these verses in Colossians and read them together what it says about Jesus, how it describes Him, they will not be able to agree with you. The Christian proclaims that Jesus is Lord, not merely a prophet, not merely a teacher, a wise man, a miracle worker, a martyr, a saint, or anything short of fully and completely the God who created the universe. Paul, in writing to the church in Colossae, reminding them that Jesus stands above everything else. Everything they are tempted to serve, everything they are tempted to fear, everything they are tempted to trust, anything they are tempted to worship, Jesus is over all. He is over all creation, we see in these verses. And in these verses, Paul shares what many to believe 
an early hymn of the Christian church because of the way in the original language in Greek that it's structured. It has a, a nice uh, form, just like we would kind of compose a song or a hymn. A song praising Jesus as the one who has all of the authority of God, the control and power of God, and even the presence of God. So what does it mean to us that Jesus is Lord? How do we respond to Jesus who is not just gentle and lowly in heart, but the one who, as the old hymn says, spins the whirling planets, sets the stars in their courses? We see in these verses what it means that Jesus is Lord. And the first thing we see is that he has authority over creation. Let's begin in verse 15. It says he is the image of the invisible God. We only know about God when he reveals himself to us. He is invisible, unknowable, and not because he hides from us, but because we in our sin and in our frailty, in our humanness, can't possibly grasp and comprehend and see the truth about who God is, as another hymn says, "'Tis only the splendor of light that hideth thee." But God graciously, lovingly, faithfully, and clearly condescends to our need and gives us a revelation of Himself. He shows us, He teaches us, He tells us who He is. We could not have come up with it on our own. Yes, Scripture does say that God's power and His existence have been clearly seen just from creation itself. But the nature of God, what kind of God He is, we could not know. Most clearly, God has revealed Himself not just in His written Word, but most vividly in Jesus Christ Himself, the, in, the image of the invisible God. When His disciples, shortly before His betrayal and death, asked Jesus, can you just Jesus, can you please just show us the Father? And that will be enough for us. In uh, John 14, verses 8 through 10, Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Just let us see God and who He is. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Now, look what Jesus connects to the presence of God in Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He connects it to authority. Jesus, when He speaks and commands, is not just giving suggestions about God or ideas about God or theories about God. He gives us the very words and commands of God Himself. What Jesus says, God says. And the way that we respond to Jesus is the way that we respond to God. In 1 John chapter 1, the Apostle says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. What that means is that if someone does not listen to and follow Jesus, then they do not listen to or follow God. To follow God, you must follow Him through Jesus. He is the image of God and has the authority of God. 
But verse 15 goes on. Not only is he the image of the invisible God, he is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn is not the way you might at first understand it, just based on the word firstborn. You might think that means the one who was born first. And there were ancient and powerful heresies in the early church about that. That Jesus was the first thing God created. He was the firstborn of creation. But no, in Scripture and in the culture in which Scripture was written, the word firstborn was not an issue of timing. It was an issue of status. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. I still remember from being a child. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, the 12 tribes of Israel. Reuben was the firstborn, but Reuben messed up. He did something he shouldn't have done, and he lost his status as firstborn. And so it went to the nextborn, Simeon and Levi, but then they messed up. And they did things they should not have done, and they lost their status as firstborn. And then the fourthborn became the firstborn. Judah became the head of the tribes of Israel. Or think of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament. As Esau trades away his birthright as firstborn, and, and Jacob gains the status. In Psalm 89, God declares David, the youngest of seven brothers, says, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Firstborn is not about who was born first. It's about who has the power in the family. Firstborn meant authority. It meant prominence. It meant in charge. It meant the leader of the family. So in verse 18, Paul repeats it this way, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. That word preeminent meaning the first, the one in charge, the one who is outstanding. And then in verse 16, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Because he is the firstborn, he is prominent, in charge, the leader. It was a privilege and it was a responsibility. The firstborn had the job of caring for the family, of defending the family, of making decisions for the family, of bearing the burden of representing the family. And that authority translates into today for us. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. And again, we can be tangled up in the way we're used to hearing words. We think head of state or head of cabbage, one or the other. But head of state, you think the leader, the appointed leader who is set apart to lead, but that's not how that's intended in this passage of Scripture. And it's right there in front of us. Paul says the head of the body. The head of the body. The body exists to support the head. The head is what makes you, you. When your friends think of you, they don't picture your thumb. I hope not. You have some weird friends if they do. No, your, your head is what represents you. It makes you distinctive. It's what your whole body is there to support and keep going. And if your head is removed from your body, you won't last very long. And so Colossians chapter 2, later on, Paul is going to speak of Jesus as the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The body gets its life from the head and it lives to support the head. The church exists to lift up, to bring honor to the head, which is Jesus. And just like your head tells your body where to go, and the lungs don't say, no, I'm not down with that. I'm going to go somewhere else. Head, we'll catch up with you later. 
body can't do that. And the church, the body of Christ, follows the direction that the head sets. It listens to the head. The church listens to Jesus because he is the head. And what that means is that for those who confess that Jesus is Lord, you are committing to look to Jesus above every other authority. Now hang in with me here because if you're hearing that and think I'm just talking about leadership and government, you're wrong. I'm, I mean, that's included, but that's not where most of our authority comes from, I would suggest. I mean, we should certainly include earthly authorities when we say that Jesus is above every other authority. Yes, no nation, no leader, no official has the power to tell you what is right and wrong. That authority comes only from God. But most of the authorities in our life, in your life, come from more subtle places. We look to our culture. We look to what the majority of the people around us think is good and right and true. We look and wonder, what do the important people in our society think? What do the powerful people in our culture think? What do the popular people in my life think? And whether consciously or not, that imposes an authority over how we think, how we feel, how we choose, what we believe. These people seem to have the authority to direct us in how to live. But Jesus is the head, not only of the church, but of all creation. And Christian, you will struggle. If you seek to be faithful to Jesus, you will struggle because you live your life in a world where lesser authorities will say one thing, whether it's the voice of the crowd or of a leader or someone you respect, they will try to impose another authority over you. But the one with all authority will tell you what is true. And from these verses in Colossians 1, we are reminded that all things were made by Him and for Him. He is the firstborn with authority over His family. He is the head with the authority over the body. We have one authority that stands above all else. Listen to Him. Now you can have authority in this world without control. You can technically be in charge but lack power. A police officer has the authority to stop a vehicle. A concrete barrier has the power to stop a vehicle, right? So in these verses, we not only see that Jesus has all the authority over his creation, but we also see that he has the control over his creation. He has control of his creation. Verse 16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not a part of God's creation. He is not the first of God's creation. He is the one who created. And he controls everything because he made everything. Now that's not a necessary conclusion. The inventor of a car or a phone may be very knowledgeable about it, but they don't have control over it once it leaves their hands. And so in verse 17, we see that Jesus did not just create all things, but he has control because he sustains them. Verse 17, he is before all things. In him all things hold together. Or as the author of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
He holds everything together. Every atom in our universe is kept in existence and kept in place by the power of Jesus. But pastor, we're more sophisticated and educated than Paul or the author of Hebrews or the writers of Scripture. We know things they didn't know. We know about gravity. We know about the laws of thermodynamics and physics and the motion of planets and the things that really actually hold the universe together. My friends, just because we can describe how they hold together doesn't mean we've ruled out and explained who holds them together. The beautiful laws of science and the observable and measurable workings of the universe are the glimpses that we get of the control of Christ over his creation. The laws of physics don't need to exist the way that they do. They exist the way they, that they do because Christ holds them together that way. This is what sets Jesus apart from every story and legend and movie about uh, someone learning magic. There's too many to name. I'm not going to mention any specific ones. But you see about somebody who's learning this magical power for the first time. And what do they usually have to do? They have to go to a school and learn about it. Or they have to mentor under a teacher who can show them the ways of this mighty magical power that they have been exposed to. And maybe they become incredibly powerful and they master this magical, forceful power that they have but they're still just trying to follow and play by the rules that were already in existence. And Jesus is not anything like that. He is not a very highly skilled worker of magical powers who is still subject to the laws of how that power works. He makes the rules. He writes the laws. He controls it all. And we see that vividly again and again in the Gospels as they recount the ministry of Jesus, the miracles show us the control of Jesus over his creation. As he raises people who are on, their, on a sick bed, as he heals the blind, he's showing his control over the human body. As he casts out demons and sends them into the distance, and cast them away from people and forbids them from returning. He shows his power over supernatural beings as he takes bread and fish and multiplies it to thousands of people or takes water and converts it into wine or stands in front of a raging storm and tells it to shut up, and it does. He shows his power over nature. And as he raises the widow's son and Lazarus and indeed himself rises from the dead, he shows that he controls even death itself. The miracles of Jesus on earth show us that he has control of creation. Christian, this is good, good news for you. When I make promises to my children, and I do it very often because it's just it's what I want to do. When I hold my children and just whisper to them, I will never let anyone hurt you. I will never let anything happen to you. In the back of my mind, I am uneasy because I know that promise only goes as far as my power. And there may come a day when my power cannot protect them the way I want to. But the God who promises to save you, the God who promises to protect you, the God who promises to bring you home to the place that He has prepared for you, the God who promises to work all things for your good, 
is the one who controls all things and holds all things together. There is nothing Nothing in all of creation that can escape his control. So when he promises you something, he will do it. Rest in that, people of God. Find your peace in his control. Rejoice in his control and fear not. Now, if the first verses of this passage have zoomed out and have given us the big, grand picture in all its glory of Jesus spinning the planets and holding galaxies by the power of His Word. Jesus with the authority to do all things. It's amazing, it's mind-blowing, and it's staggering, but it's also utterly cold and distant and lonely if that is all that is true of Him. If God is only a God at a distance, if He's only or more concerned with galaxies than He is with me and with you, then He is a God to be feared and worshipped still. But something is lacking. And so the remaining verses of this passage bring that amazing song of King Jesus from the outer reaches of the universe and bring them to our hearts. It brings the authority of God above creation, the control of Jesus over creation. But finally, we see that Jesus is also the presence of God in creation. Verse 19, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus does not just teach about God or represent God. He's not partly God or a little bit God or even mostly God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. He's the God of the universe, clothing himself in frail humanity, leaving nothing behind, still fully all that God is. Emmanuel, God with us. But don't stop there. God is, yes, present in his creation through Jesus, but he's not present just to walk around and check things out and see what's going on and enjoy the vibes of the world that he has made. He has a purpose in being present in creation. And that purpose is this. We were made to have fellowship with God. It's built into us. It's engineered in us. It's what we're for. And we're incomplete until that is fulfilled. But when Adam and Eve sinned, that relationship that they were created for, that relationship with God was broken. And every human descendant lived in that state of estrangement and brokenness from God. But not only that, all of creation suffers as a result. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that creation, all of creation is waiting with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. In hope, they're waiting in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why is the world such a messed up place? Why does it feel so miserably stinking hot sometimes? Why is it so unbearably cold? Why do storms come and ruin our homes? Why does the earth shake and take lives? Why, is, why are animals fighting against us? Why creation is in bondage to futility and frustration and it's waiting, creation itself is waiting for its creator to reconcile everything, to fix it, to make it better. What we need and what God desired was this word reconciliation, to have the relationship fixed. 
But in order to do that, we needed someone to make peace. Have you ever heard, I know, I'm sure some of you have, the story of the peace child? It's a famous story from uh, a, actually a book called The Peace Child by missionary Don Richardson. Don Richardson was serving as a missionary in New Guinea to the Sawi people. And the problem with the Sawi people, as he attempted to share the gospel, he invested in their culture for years and years and years, learned their language, a complicated language, with 18 forms of the indicative verb. My language people know that'll make your head spin. Uh, and as he was finally getting to the point where he could share the gospel story, he, he was telling the stories of the, the life and then ultimately the betrayal and the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And in, in many cultures, uh, as a missionary, when you share this story for the first time, the, the pinnacle of the story is the resurrection. And the hero is clearly Jesus. But for the Sawi people, their hero was Judas. Because in their culture, the value was betrayal. Was to be so smart, you could build a relationship with somebody and then take advantage of them. And Richardson was at a loss to think of how to share the gospel with a, with a people with such a depraved value system. And then it became violent because neighboring tribes were, were beginning to war with one another. And, and try though they might, these missionaries could not help them form a peace. And finally, for their own safety, they said they had to leave. And when the Sawi people heard that these uh, people they'd grown to love were planning to leave them, they said, no, we will make peace. We will get a peace child. And Don and his wife had no idea what a peace child was. And they witnessed one of the most amazing things. The heads of the two tribes came together. And a representative, I don't know if I could do this, a representative from one of the tribes brought their own child to the other tribe and gave him to another family. And a family from the other tribe came and brought their own child and gave it to the other tribe. And they made promises that they would raise these children and protect them. And the giving of that child forged a peace between those cultures. And, the, and Don said, he asked, well, how do we know this child won't be abused and mistreated because it's your enemy? He said, no, you don't do that to a peace child. A peace child makes peace between the tribes, a peace that cannot be broken. And the missionary realized, though these people are have a twisted view of values, God has put within them a message of redemption. And he said, now I know how to tell you who Jesus was. Jesus was the peace child that God gave. But in order to give him, he had to be fully God. He had to come from the, he truly come from the tribe that was making peace. And this is what happens in verse 20. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God became a person in Jesus so that he could make peace with us by being punished for our sins. The one who has all authority in the universe, who created it all and rules over it all, made himself weak enough and humble enough to enter his creation as a man to be killed as a sacrifice so that you and me and all of his children could be brought back home. And when that happens, all of creation is made right. This is why in the story of Scripture, we can't just skip from Genesis to Revelation. The very good creation, oops, there's a fall. Let's go to the end where everything is right. We have to go through. We must go through the cross. There's no other way to making things right. And in your life as well, the prescription for peace. For peace in our world and for peace in your life 
is only Christ. In the world, there will not be peace if there's more war, stronger armies, more stringent laws. Peace comes only through the presence of God. And for you to have lasting peace in your life, it does not come through a bank account, a political party's platform, a diet plan, a relationship, a hobby, or anything else. Peace will only come through the reconciliation of the presence of God in Jesus Christ. When the root of all your struggles, the sin beneath every sin, the brokenness behind every brokenness, when that is pieced together in Jesus, that's the only way things are made right. One thing to notice about this as we conclude and as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, I want you to notice in this in these verses, especially the reconciling and the making of peace is a one way thing. God is the one who makes it happen. You don't have to believe it for it to be true. You don't have to act on it for it to be true. So when we share our vision as a church, we talk about this phrase, living out the gospel together. The gospel is not something you make happen. That's why we don't say living the gospel. We don't make the gospel happen. God made that gospel happen. The gospel is not some power waiting, a latent power, potential energy sitting there, waiting to be activated by your faith or, your, or something that you do. The gospel is the power of God at work through Jesus, the Lord over all creation. And our calling is to live in response to what he has done. He, the presence of God, the fullness of God, has made peace through the cross. We live in response to that. He has reconciled me and you. We're going to hear more about that next week. Let us live joyfully as a result. He is reconciling all things. Let us take part in that mission, calling the lost home, mending the broken parts of our communities, loving as we have been loved. And we do this with confidence because all of the authority, all of the control, and even the very presence of God is in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate that in the Lord's Supper. Join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts. Our God and our Savior, how great, how great is Jesus Christ. And He who was fully God, with all the authority of the One who made the universe, with the control and power to hold it together, is present with us in a way that saves. We thank you for that. Teach that to our hearts and lead us in a joyful, faithful, obedient response. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. As some of the elders come forward to, to serve us in the Lord's Supper, it's good to pause and reflect just for a moment on what this is. This is not just symbol, a symbolic act that we do that we might remember that Jesus died for our sins. It is that. But it is so much more. We speak of the Lord's Supper as a sign and as a seal 
It is a sign that points to something. It points us to the fullness of God taking on flesh and blood. And what happened to that flesh and blood? That body was broken. The flesh was torn. The blood was spilled out for your salvation. With the end goal, the end game, that all things would be reconciled to God through this amazing, unforgettable act. It is a sign of that. But it's also a seal. A seal like a stamp that an authority puts on a document, guaranteeing it. God puts His stamp on His promises through Jesus. The promises and words of God for your salvation are not just words. God has put His child, His Son, where His words are. And because Jesus has died, as Scripture says, if if God has given us His Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And so all that God has promised is guaranteed to you because God keeps His promises, and we see that in Jesus Christ. And so this is a, what we call a covenant meal. A covenant being an agreement that God makes with His people based on grace. That covenant is that God Himself will fulfill His promise to save. And He calls you to live in light of that. And so this is not just for anybody. If you've not looked at Jesus Christ, if you have read Colossians 1, 15-20 with us and said, that's interesting, but I can't go all the way with that. That's not who I think Jesus is. That's not what I think Jesus did. Then this is not for you. This is for those who look to Jesus and say, there is my Lord with all the authority of God, the power and control of God, and the very presence of God for me. So if that is not you, if you've not trusted Him to deliver you by His death, then let the bread and let the cup go by. Because those who eat and drink here are confessing their faith by that action. Saying, I believe that what Jesus did was enough for me. And if that's not true of you, don't confess it with your actions. That would not be true. Instead, as it goes around, think and reflect upon what you've heard here and what God's Word says. No one will judge you for that. We'd rather you be honest than hypocritical. Scripture also gives us warnings that if anyone is falsely proclaiming Christ in the sense of, I call myself a Christian, I act like a Christian sometimes, but I choose how to live my life. And if you are embracing sin and living in a way that you know is against God's will and not just struggling in sin, not just dealing with an addiction, not just failing and coming back in faith, but choosing boldly to rebel against God because you are abusing the grace of God, then this is a warning of what God does to sin. He punishes it. And those who abuse His grace do not receive His grace in the end. We also have a warning in Scripture that if you are preparing to worship, and it comes to your mind that your brother or sister has something against you, that you've hurt someone, sinned against someone, offended someone, and not made it right. First, go and be reconciled, then worship. Likewise, if someone has sinned against you, and you are withholding grace, if they've asked your forgiveness, or even if not, if you have refused to show them the same grace that God showed you, you are warned in Scripture. You are warned to first 
show the grace that God has shown you before receiving the sign and symbol and seal of that grace. I've given a lot of warnings. And those that are here regularly know that I don't like to end with the warnings. So I want to end with this affirmation. If anything I've said scared you or intimidated you or made you feel like, whoa, this is not the place for me. My life is too messed up. I'm not good enough for this. I don't have my house in order yet. That's not my intention. I once had a pastor who said, my job is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Hear me now comforting the afflicted. If you are feeling weakened, if you are feeling unworthy, if you're feeling undeserving, if you are feeling powerless, you are in the right place to receive the grace of God. Because he did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. And if anything, this is for the weak to be strengthened. Food for your weary souls to remind you that it's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. Christ, our Lord, with all the authority and power in the universe, clothed himself in flesh and blood and let himself be killed for you. Come and receive the promise of God. Pray with me as we prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, prepare us to receive your grace. As we've received it in word and in song and in prayer and even in our fellowship together, pray that we would receive it in this sacrament, this holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein through sensible things, bread and the cup, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed and applied to us not because of anything we've done, not because of any magical or mystical power they have, but because the Holy Spirit works through these things according to your command. May we be strengthened by them. May we be encouraged by them. May we see and hear and smell and touch and taste the gospel by them. And in doing so, be strengthened for faith, love, and new obedience, we pray. In 